The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Say, buddy, will you stake a fellow on... Hey, mister, will you stake a fellow American to a meal? Big lottery, senor. Beat it. I ain't buying no lottery tickets. Go on, beat it. Four thousand pesos to big price. Get away from me, you little beggar. The whole ticket is only four pesos. It's a sure winner. I ain't got four pesos. Buy a quarter of a ticket for one peso silver. If you don't get away from me, I'm gonna throw this water right in your face. Hey, um, you stake a fellow American to a meal? Hey, mister. Will you stake a fellow American to a meal? Such impudence never came my way. Early this afternoon, I gave you money. While I was having my shoes polished, I gave you more money. Now you put the bite on me again. Do me a favor, will you? Go occasionally to somebody else. It's beginning to get tiresome. Oh, excuse me, mister. I never thought it was you. I never looked at your face. I just looked at your hands and the money you gave me. Beg pardon, mister. I promise I'll never put the bite on you again. This is the very last you get from me. Just to make sure you don't forget your promise. Here's another peso. Thanks, mister. Thanks. But from now on, you have to make your way through life without my assistance. Welcome, everyone. It's Thursday, December 3rd, 2015. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on WBCQ 5.110 MHz. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. And welcome to our show today where my theme in the second half of the show will be a tale of two religions, the religion of majority rule and the religion of literalism in religion itself. How about that for, for a topic, Robert? Well, I look forward to it, Bob. Yeah. Well, both are forms of literalism that I think destroy the fundamental institutions from which they emanate, you know. Mm -hmm. The idea of majority rule, I think, is destructive to democracy, while literalism in religion... I think actually destroys a lot of the fundamental purpose and real function of religion, meaning in the real world. So it's a theme that could take a lifetime of study, but we'll see what I can do with it in the space of our second half hour today or so. Well, meanwhile, for the first half of our show today, Robert, I guess you have an interesting topic for us? Well, tis the season for altruism, egalitarianism, and giving. And uh, I don't know if you're a bit of, a bit of a, a shopper, Bob. You go out there to do your Christmas shopping. But last Friday, of course, was Black Friday. And to merchants, Black Friday is one of the busiest shopping days before Christmas. Wikipedia suggests that the term Black Friday was coined by Philadelphia police to describe the crowds and traffic congestion accompanying the Christmas shopping season. While some think that the black refers to the accounting term of being in the black as opposed to being in the red. Right. Well... The altruists have countered this day of profit and consumerism with their own day of loss and guilt. The first Tuesday after Black Friday is now to be known as Giving Tuesday. Giving Tuesday has its roots with a New York Jewish organization called 92nd Street Y and Ted Turner in the United Nations. 92nd Street Y has this to say about themselves, quote, as a proudly Jewish organization, 92Y enthusiastically welcomes and reaches out to people of all ages, races, faiths, and backgrounds while embracing Jewish values like learning and self-improvement. 
the importance of family, the joy of life, and giving back to our wonderfully diverse and growing community, both locally and around the world, unquote. You know, I can't disagree with the, the concept of philanthropy or charity or benevolence, as long as they're not considered to be a duty or an obligation. But the notion of giving back to our wonderfully diverse and growing community implies that one has taken from that community yeah, without proper exactly. compensation. Giving back implies that at some point in time you took away, as in stole, as it did not reimburse the person you gained from, or as in received a gift for which you felt an obligation to pay back but couldn't. Ted Turner, of Turner Broadcasting fame, is a notable philanthropist. In 1997, he donated $1 billion of his personal fortune to create the United Nations Foundation. And this is what Mr. Turner had to say about his philanthropy. Quote, Over the years, the United Nations Foundation has done innovative work to make the world a better place and has helped strengthen the UN in the process. This gives me a lot of satisfaction, as have my efforts to influence other wealthy people to become more active in philanthropy. After the billion-dollar pledge, I challenged my fellow billionaires to do more. I realized that many of them used their net worth as a way of keeping score, and they enjoyed seeing where they ranked on lists put out by magazines like Fortune and Forbes. Understanding how competitive most of these people were, I called on the media to start publishing lists of people who gave away the most. I figured that this would not only motivate people to try to get to the top of the philanthropy list, it could also shame some whose names didn't show up. Slate.com was the first to take up the list idea, and other media outlets joined in later. Unquote. Now, with this statement, Mr. Turner has become the epitome of an egalitarian. First of all, he gives away his money to an organization which has as its members some of the most brutal, bloodthirsty, barbaric nations on earth. It is an organization which has perpetuated world conflicts by intervention, and it has made a mockery of rights by voting Saudi Arabia to chair a panel on human rights. It's an organization which values nothing, where no single nation must be considered better than any other, an out-and-out -out denial of reality. Turner has entrusted a billion dollars to people and bureaucrats who coddle murderers. Turner has also used his philanthropy to, using his word, shame others into relinquishing, relinquishing control of a sizable percentage of their wealth in some sort of wealth-destroying competition. He revels in his benevolence going on speaking tours all over the world, reminding people of just how much of his wealth he has given away to people he doesn't know, saving species of animals, his pet concern, which he is told are dangerous or in danger <laughs> of extinction. Now, it's a disgusting display, in my opinion, of false piety by a man who Otherwise, amassed a fortune delivering products and services to willing customers, trading value for value. Why he should have a sense of guilt about being productive, successful, and wealthy is a consequence of the destructive philosophy of altruism. His attempt to destroy his personal wealth before he dies by giving it away is an example of egalitarianism. He wishes to bring himself down to the level of the people he is supposedly benefiting with his largesse. He and other billionaires like him have nothing to feel guilty about. They have nothing to be ashamed of if they've earned their wealth honestly in a free market. Giving back 
amounts to giving away. Turner has sullied the very concept of wealth and has made it into something he believes we should renounce. He feels ashamed of his success for no better reason than because he was brought up like that that way. You know, his father did it. Turner is no doubt maybe, a very maybe, brilliant man. Sorry, Bob, do you want to maybe, say? You know, you know, I was just thinking, maybe he doesn't believe he deserves it. I've heard a few rich people talk like that. Oh, well, I was just lucky. I got lucky, you know. It could have been anybody. That kind of thing. And I find that kind of, kind of it could, there's always a bit of luck involved in a person's wealth. But my goodness, uh, the, you know, it's funny how society often has this total negative image toward corporations and rich people when they're earning the wealth and making the money, but when they give it away, my goodness, they're saints. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what it's all about for Turner. He wants to be a saint. He wants to be thought of yeah. as a saint. You know, he is a he's a very smart man, a brilliant man in the field of business, no doubt. And maybe a bit of luck had, to, uh, you know, is, is part of it. But I think it, it goes hand in hand with his own business acumen, his own brilliance. With such intelligence at work, there's no telling how that billion dollars he has pissed away might have been used to better people's lives in the same way that his media empire has bettered people's lives. That is, if bettering people's lives is his primary goal, which, according to my sense of values, it shouldn't be. It should be the work itself should be your goal, not the ancillary benefit of helping others. Now, Turner has said that, quote, I consider my contributions of more than $1.3 billion to various causes over the years to be one of my proudest accomplishments and the best investment I've ever made. Those dollars have improved lives, saved species, fought disease, educated children, inspired change, challenged ideas, and opened minds. And at the time of my death, virtually all of my wealth will have gone to charity, unquote. Turner seems to have no idea how his business acumen has enriched and improved the lives of millions by employing hundreds of thousands of people, by entertaining, by informing people with his media empire. Although of late, <laughs> companies like Dead Turner's CNN have probably done more harm than good with their extreme left-wing slant on the news. I don't know how much editorial control he has over CNN, so I'll cut him a little slack there. Although, in fact, there are many of Turner's investments which can be considered more detrimental than beneficial to mankind, including his investments in renewable energy at the expense of fossil fuels. I think it's safe to say that, although he obviously has a mind of his own, that mind uh, seems to be steeped in the poisonous broth that is the ideology of the left. But his personal politics aside, the man is a walking guilt trip. Ashamed of his success, he seeks to make amends by shaming others into destroying their wealth along with him. Charity and benevolence may be positive personal qualities, but only in certain circumstances. Grandstanding, like Ted Turner is doing, as the world's leading philanthropist, is certainly not an endearing quality. Grandstanding is seeking approval from others for your acts. A businessman who is a man of personal integrity doesn't need to seek the approval of others, only their trade. This is the better quality to have, if you ask me. Charity should not be considered a regular venture, either. Charity should be more of a matter of urgency or emergency, and once the urgency is abated, life should return back to normal. I can just imagine what good Turner's $1.3 would have done if he had put that into creating new businesses or promoting capitalism. Now, there's an idea, the only political system which has lifted billions out of poverty, but I never see any American billionaires praising the virtues 
of the very system which enabled them to amass great fortunes. Have you, Bob? I, that, I haven't. That, that, that always amazes me. Uh, there might be one or two out there. Even Ayn Rand was disappointed that there were no no capitalist heroes in the sense that she would portray them in her novels, right? Yes, yes, I remember she was talking about that. Yeah, she waited until she died. To, you know, they, that, that knock they, on the door by that billionaire saying that he, he, he amassed his fortune because of her ideals, you know. Right. I think it's unrealistic to expect that, too, because a capitalist in business is not a capitalist like you and I who are preaching the, the philosophy of capitalism. Mm -hmm. their, their mind is focused on something else. And so to expect them to even appreciate the environment that gives them the freedom to do what they're doing is maybe expecting too much. I mean, let's face it, the average guy doesn't get it either, who, yeah. who doesn't realize when he has a job how, how, how fortunate he is. It, it, it is expecting too much, I think, yeah, because it hasn't happened. I mean, when Bill Gates goes out there and gives away his money like that, the way he does, and actually, I mean, Bill Gates is turning out to be quite the uh, socialist as well as Ted Turner. You know, when people realize that the degree of poverty experienced in a country is inversely proportional to the degree of capitalism that country enjoys, you know, then maybe we can have these guys out there talking about it more. The more free market a country is, the less poverty exists in that country. It's black and white. Right. It's a fact. It's provable. It's causal. Uh, Ayn, Rand, Ayn Rand used to say when you're talking about a have and have not country, what the country has not is freedom. Is freedom, exactly. <laughs> you know, and not only that, poverty in relatively free countries like Canada and the United States amounts to owning only one car instead of two, or not being able to afford a data plan for your cell phone, or not having enough closet space for your ever-expanding wardrobe. That's poverty in Canada, really. You know, poverty in countries like Angola or Venezuela amounts to choosing which one of your children should eat today or deciding if you have enough strength to walk down to the river to bring back some brackish water to drink. Spreading yep. freedom and capitalism is perhaps the best use of any spare change, or in the case of Ted Turner, any spare billions. Throwing money into the black holes of Marxist countries like Venezuela or dictatorships like Angola does nothing to help the poor. In fact, it bolsters the hold of the despots on their people and perpetuates their intolerable condition. Creating businesses and new products and employing people to deliver new services and selling these services brings people out of poverty. And that's the way to go about it. Gather round, kids. It's time for Sheldon's beloved Christmas special. <laughs> In the pre-Christian era, as the winter solstice approached and the plants died, pagans brought evergreen boughs into their homes as an act of sympathetic magic intended to guard the life essences of the plants until spring. Uh, this custom was later appropriated by Northern Europeans, and eventually it becomes the so-called Christmas tree. <laughs> and that, Charlie Brown, is what boredom is all about. Thank you for that, but I got you and Leonard a few silly neighbor gifts, so I'll just put them under my tree. Wait, you bought me a present? Uh-huh. Well, why would you do such a thing? I don't know, because it's Christmas. Oh, Penny, I know you think you're being generous, but the foundation of gift giving is reciprocity. You haven't given me a gift. You've given me an obligation. Don't feel bad, Penny. It's a classic rookie mistake. My first Hanukkah with Sheldon, he yelled at me for eight nights. Uh, honey, it's okay. You don't have to give me anything in return. Of course I do. The essence of the custom is that I now have to go out and purchase for you a gift of commensurate value and representing the same perceived level of friendship as that represented by the gift you've given me. Well, it's no wonder suicide rates skyrocket this time of year.
Let's talk about presents. What did you get, Amy? Oh, we're not exchanging gifts. Come on, Sheldon, you have to get her something. But why should I? Look, she knows that I don't like Christmas, and yet every year she forces me to celebrate it. You know, not only am I going to this foolish dinner against my will, at the Christmas tree lot, there was mistletoe, and she kissed me under it in public. Like we were the stars of a Tijuana sex show. <laughs> she's just excited about the holidays. Yes, and she's not taking my feelings into account at all. And maybe it's time I teach her a lesson. How? Hmm. It'd have to be something heinous. Something that makes her as miserable as she's making me. Oh, I've got it. This is good. What? I'm going to buy her a present. Yeah, you're gonna have to walk me through that. With gift-giving, there's an implied social contract. If I show up tonight with a present and she doesn't have one for me, she'll feel terrible. Then you're both sad. Yes. And maybe she'll feel so guilty she'll never make me celebrate the holidays again. So your evil plot here is to buy your girlfriend a present? That's right. You just stay on my good side or I'll get you a little something too. Ted Turner and others like him are altruists who sacrifice fortunes to help people they have never met. This selfless giving out of guilt likewise imposes a sense of guilt on the recipients who are unable to repay their obligation to the giver. With every giver, there's a taker, a recipient. Any taker certainly feels a sense of obligation to pay back to the giver, and if they can't repay the giving, they will harbor resentment towards the giver for having imposed such a debt upon them. With that in mind, think of how recipients of foreign aid often feel towards countries like Canada or the United States. We oh, I our... mentioned that before. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not... It's not a minor issue. It's a big issue. Oh, no, yes. We, in our giving, are establishing that we are better than them. Resentment is the natural consequence. And in our ignorance, we can't understand why people in countries like Afghanistan or Iraq want to destroy us, considering the millions in foreign aid we have heaped upon them. Foreign aid has become what was once known hundreds of years ago as tribute, where one nation paid another not to invade them. When our tribute is rebuffed, we feel confused and and don't realize that the rejection is due to the feeling of inferiority which is felt by the nation receiving our foreign aid. They have this, it's a natural feeling, I think, to think that if somebody's giving you millions of dollars, oh, you're showing up, you're showing them up as being inferior, you're showing them up as being needy, while you are being, uh, you know, you may think you're benevolent, but what you're being is is a bit of a, Bit of an ass. <laughs> well, well, it's a tool of control too. That's why that's why politicians love the welfare state. If you're in their hands, then they then you vote for them just to keep getting the goodies. Yeah, yeah. You know, on Giving Tuesday, this past Tuesday, we we're supposed to be giving back to the community. Where is this community to whom we're supposedly in debt? Is it the same community which voted in successive governments who have for the past hundred years raised taxes to the level of over 50%? If so, then I can only say the community can go to hell. If anything, the community should start giving back to me. The community owes me much more than I could ever owe it. It owes you much more than you could ever owe it. You know, I once calculated on um, show 334, 334, you remember this, Bob, 
that a, well, a proper I that show specifically. Yeah. Oh, three, three, four. Yeah, I remember that yeah. one. Yeah, it was back in uh, 2012, I think. That a proper federal government could be funded by a sales tax tax of as little as seven percent, with all yes. the other taxes, every other tax and duty eliminated completely. A sales tax of seven percent would fund a proper government. Now, since we have a government who believes that its purpose is the redistribution of wealth, we are taxed to an amount about seven times that. That excess has been taken from you and me by force, by the community. So I say again, the community can go pound salt. Under what conditions, because I I don't oppose necessarily charity, but under what conditions should a person be charitable? I would only say that the recipient should be known to be truly in need. The need should be an urgent one and not a perpetual charity case. And the giving should be done out of a love for one's own life and out of a, a sense of goodwill and not any sense of obligation or moral duty or, in Ted Turner's case, guilt. What one uh, gives should also be no sacrifice to himself. You know, you, you don't make yourself a charity case when you're mm-hmm. giving to others. Another quality of a proper charity is that it should be in direct proportion to the relationship one has to the recipient. It should be more likely that you would give to a loved one than a stranger, a neighbor than someone from another town, a countryman than to a foreigner. The reason is simple, in that the closer the recipient of charity is to you, the more likely that person either is a value to you, as in a loved one, or at least shares your values or some of the values. Like, you know, a countryman does share a a lot of the values that you share. A neighbor shares a lot of the values that you share. And so giving to them if they're in need or in urgent need is not so much a sacrifice as it is being somewhat a little selfish in yourself because you're helping somebody who values what you value or at least might value that. Absolutely. Yeah, but to give your money to the United Nations or to any government body to, to, to distribute, that is the kind of community which takes and takes without my consent so often that people of goodwill are in fact less likely to feel charitable. And instead of saying, I gave at the office, people are more inclined to say, I gave at the tax office. The community has taken the typically benevolent act of charity and has given it to, uh, has made it their primary purpose, is what they've done. Except that once force is involved, which, by the way, is the only tool governments have at their disposal, it no longer becomes charity, it's just plain theft. You know, like the clip at the opening of the show, we hear of a man who is uh, given to a poor countryman, played by Humphrey Bogart in The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yeah, great movie. Oh, it was, yes, indeed. He gave a few pesos which were of apparently little loss to him. Upon finding that the poor man has done nothing to improve his lot, he becomes tired of being a source for indolence. Sometimes the best charity is what has been called tough love. If receiving charity becomes easy, there is no longer much of an incentive to fend for oneself. And that was brought home when the guy basically said, you know, this is the last you're getting from me. Sure, help a guy when he's down on his luck to a meal now and then, but... There are limits, and there have to be limits. Otherwise, it's just going to happen forever. You know, my proposal for Giving Tuesday next year is to go buy something for yourself. The very act of buying something is you giving your hard-earned wealth to somebody who is giving you something in return. Trade is always win-win. 
You wanted the money less than the object you bought, and the seller wanted the object he sold less than the money he received for it. There is no loss. There is only gain. There is no charity. There is only profit. There is no guilt. There is only pride in the fact that you produced enough to have money to buy something which enriches your life. And the person uh, who bought that object, you bought the object from, is wealthier because he now has your money in return and can do the same for himself. I mean, how more simpler can it be, people? Giving is trade. Trade is giving. So if you want to give, buy something. Trade is a much more nobler transaction than giving with nothing in return, except a reduction in your own guilt. You know, and with that, I hope that Bob and I are going to be giving you something today in this uh, hour, some food for thought, and we ask nothing in return. But if you feel a bit guilty, you can always like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe to us on iTunes, or just visit us on JustRateMedia.org and leave a comment. And Ted Turner, if you're listening, we'll take your largesse without any guilt whatsoever. <laughs> Thank you very much. You know where to donate. Go to our website and click the donate button, Ted. It's there. We're waiting. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, as far as, you know, uh, Giving Tuesday, I'd call it Give Me a Break Day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what the guy in the opening clip was saying. You know? yeah. Okay, sir, looks like your total is $37.83. All right. Okay, and would you like to add a dollar donation to help hungry kids around the world? Oh, uh, no, that, that's okay. Sorry? I'm, I'm good. I'm sorry, you don't want to give the dollar to hungry kids? Not today, thank you. Okay, no problem. Windows gonna come up and ask if you're helping the hungry kids. Just hit no, I'm not. Oh, come on. Try hitting it again. It's the box below the one that says, sure, I'd love to help however I can. Ah, darn thing, sorry. Most people give the dollar. I can do this manually. Look, I give money to charity a lot, okay? Oh, sure you do. I do. I just don't want to every time I shop for food. That's completely understandable. Have customers speak on my... Oh, okay. if you can just speak into the voice decoder and say, I'm not giving anything to the hungry kids. I'm not giving anything to the hungry kids. Hungry kids. Okay, that's got it. So, with the ice cream, the vodka, pizza pockets, and nothing for hungry kids, that's $37.83. Oh, don't forget your change. I thought you were going to make me happy. I never promised you that. That's up to you. I just gave you seven wishes for one measly little soul. I'm only doing my job. Your job? Shh! Making people miserable. No, giving them the chance to be happy. It's God's idea. Don't confuse me with religion. You see, his theory, and I'm not knocking it, is that in order for people to be really good, they have to make a free choice between good and evil and choose good. Look, I'm a vital part of his plan. I provide the evil. Let's go. More work to be done. What a dreary thing to do. I hope you're proud of yourself. It was pride that got me into this. I used to be an angel, you know, up in heaven. Oh, yeah, you used to be God's favourite, didn't you? That's right. I love Lucifer, it was in those days. What was it like up in heaven? <laughs> Very nice, really. We used to sit round all day and adore him. Believe me, he was adorable. Just about the most adorable thing you ever did see. For a start, he's omnipresent. What do you mean? 
I only mean he's everywhere all over the world at the same time. That's all I mean. I'm just highly manoeuvrable. So he's in here right now, then? Of course he is. He's in the van, he's in the can, he's up the trees, he's in the breeze, he's in your hair, he's everywhere. Spying on you, peering at you, listening to everything you say. There's no privacy for anyone. Get out of here while I'm changing, can't you? You won't get anywhere by shouting at him, you know. You're quite right, of course. I'll try the humble approach. You are listening to Just Right on WBCQ 5.110 MHz. Now, that brilliantly written exchange between actor Dudley Moore and the devil from the movie Bedazzled expresses more of what is at the root of religion, a belief in God, and the entire moral code of many differing cultures and religions than do a host of theoretical books written on the subject. You know, Robert, God sounds a lot like Santa Claus, doesn't he? He sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, so be good for goodness sake. (laughs) Creepy, actually. (laughs) It is. You know, Santa God. Santa is the God for children. God is the Santa for adults. Isn't that how it almost sounds? Well, my theme for the remainder of our show today will be a tale of two religions, the religion of majority rule, which I'll talk about in the next quarter, and the religion of literalism in religion, which I'm wanting to start off with now. Now, I talked about these issues before on the show, and, um, you know, the idea of literalism, I think, destroys the intent of what the original thing that people are being literal about is. And so... We've spoken at length on this show in the past about our broader perspectives on God, religion, morality, and state in religion, and in particular, I did so way back in 2007 on just right number 24, September 27 of that year. So for today, let me do the Reader's Digest version of the discussion and begin at the so-called beginning on the religious side of the equation. I think you'll see where I'm going with this. So I'm going to ask the question, is there such a thing as a real religion? You know, Scottish philosopher John McMurray suggested there is such a thing while acknowledging that no real religion yet exists today. He says they're all at a very immature stage of development, almost almost paralle- you know, paralleling what Rand said about religions being uh, primitive forms of philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, but if religion as we know it today was based not on faith and on supernatural mysticism, but on reality and reason, how might that religion look in terms of using the same words and terms that we're already familiar with? As many of our regular listeners may already know, I I personally do not believe in deities or any concept of a god based on, on deity. Some people think that's a contradiction, but I'll explain. I'm not religious in any mystically spiritual sense of the word. But I also do not dismiss um, either the concept of God nor the function of religion out of hand, nor, nor do I call myself an atheist. We went through all this in the past, Robert, because, mm-hmm. you know, we do, that's a way of describing something you're not, something, not something that you are. Instead, I take what, for simplicity's sake, I'll call a secular view of both God and religion, one that has formed after I made a conscious effort to objectively look at each phenomenon, social phenomenon, um, because remember, God and religion are not necessarily the same thing. Now, you remember that saying, of, of course I believe in God, but he doesn't exist. <laughs> that was Terry Garr, the actress in the movie Oh God, after discovering that her husband, played by John Denver, claims that he has been literally talking to God, who, of course, was uh, played by George Burns. So basically played- she was admitting to just to, a, to agreeing to a social convention rather than being a literalist. Correct. 
Yeah. And, and we played that scene on one of our previous shows dedicated to this issue. And that statement, of course, I believe in God, but he doesn't exist, just as you said, Robert, is for me a, a great way of distinguishing between the symbolism of what God represents to a rational person versus the literalism and irrationality of seeing God as a rat- rational being himself, not the supreme being at all. And, and so to cut to the quick... Here is my personal quick guide to God and religion, or as I like to call it, the gospel according to Bob, okay? Okay. It begins thusly. God is the supreme being. Surprised, aren't you? Now, not a supreme being, being, you know, with rational faculty of some sort, but the supreme being, the being of all, which most people who do not use the word God would refer to as existence itself. In this context, God is a personalized or personified, rather, representation or symbol of existence, which explains why the devil in Bedazzled said, God is omnipotent everywhere, all over the world. At the same time, he's everywhere spying on you. He's even in your hair. (laughs) (laughs) So this also explains why God has always existed, because existence has always existed. There's no beginning point, no end point, and there's no such condition as nothingness or non-existence that preceded existence. How many times have we said, ain't no such thing as nothing, honey, because if there were, wouldn't that be something? Uh, It's so true. And I think God is not a top-down concept, but a bottom-up concept. It is man's rationality, not any consciousness or rationality of the universe coming from above, that leads to the discovery of laws of the universe, the laws of existence. And in arriving at some interpretation of those laws, we imagine that there is some conscious, rational will behind them, when really it's simply through our own discovery and understanding of those laws in which any rationality exists at all. The laws of nature, of existence, of God, if you will, are descriptive, not prescriptive. You cannot choose to disobey them. The so-called law of gravity is a perfect example. It's a reality, not something supernatural, in which, in which case it wouldn't exist because it wouldn't be natural, right? Uh, by the primary, definition. Yes. Well, it's axiomatic, as they say. The primary law of nature, or of God in existence, is the law of causality. And that's another descriptive law, not a prescriptive law. You know, an action once taken has consequences, which cannot be undone following the action. The consequences are determined by the action. Cause and effect, that's what we call it. The action cannot be taken back, which makes for some great themes for time travel movies. (laughs) But aside from that, not much more. Over time, humanity discovers that some actions lead to good or desirable consequences, which are called good while other actions have very bad or undesirable consequences, which we call bad. (laughs) And this, in turn, leads to the birth of morality. And this is interesting, I think, because prior to our knowledge of these causes and consequences, we really have no way of knowing which is which, other than by trial and error or by trial and success. Once the necessary knowledge of good and bad has been accumulated, our choices and consequences become subject not just to good and bad, but to right and wrong, or good and evil. And thus is born a code of morality. You know, a rational being who knowingly chooses evil, who takes actions that he knows in advance have bad consequences, is said to be immoral in so doing. Those, you know, whose code of behavior lead to known good consequences are, are said to be moral. And thus we have the birth of religions and of cultures. 
Religions are formed when enough people form bonds or relationships around their moral codes, which could be seen as immoral codes by others, both in the morality they accept and in the morality that they might reject. So, you know, the story of religion is the religion of stories. You have the story of Muhammad, the story of Christ, the story of Captain Kirk, for heaven's sakes, why not? Because these are all mythologies of sort in which the values of a culture are buried. We, this even applied, we talked about Greek mythology and, 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 and the culture of Greece and, and Rome and how all these things intermixed. So I guess, how do you change, preserve, or affect a culture? And, or how do you change, preserve, or affect values? You do that by telling a story. And, you know, that in a nutshell, Robert, is the gospel according to Bob. <laughs> it begs the question, though, Bob. I mean, if, if you're sure. saying that God or the supreme being is basically existence, why don't you just use the word existence to describe what you're talking about instead of God or supreme being? Good question, because we do that with everything. We, we do, when, even when we talk about a ship, it's a she. Oh, you're personifying. Yes, because that's how we relate to everything around us. We, mm. Everything has to be, it has to have a name. And, and the, the, the word G-O-D is a single syllable name that works very well to describe an extraordinarily complex abstraction. And if we're expecting that to be, um, how, how do you put it, um, you know, taken in by the society as part of its ingrained sense of life, you can't do that through ex, ex, you know, explanations and, and descriptions. You have to do that through something far deeper. And I think that's the purpose that religion serves. This, this, is, this is a much greater conversation that I could have gone into you know, m much deeper than I am today. Mm. But for now, that's as far as I, I can go on that issue before we turn to our others. But just on a, on a point here... You know, there are the two beginnings. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And a lot of people think that's about um, creation, when I think it's not. I think it's about the beginning of consciousness and of reason, and of the Word itself, not of existence. And the biblical tale, the story that relates to this, is that of Adam and Eve being cast from the Garden of Eden, which we also took a comprehensive look at on past broadcasts. So check them out. And just as God, as the God concept is used as a symbol of the good, so too the devil, Satan, or Lucifer has come to represent the personification of evil. Lucifer, however, was once referred to as the bringer of light, you know, reason and reality, which would have forced him to deny a literal God for which he was banished to hell. And Robert, I, I'm, I've been asking this question, nobody knows the answer. Did hell exist before the devil did? Or did all hell just break loose before that, and he organized it? You know, I really nobody knows. You know, how many angels can fit on the head of a pin? The same kind of question, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know what? It doesn't really matter. Yeah, my ice lolly's melted. You really must be the devil. Incarnate. How do you do? Oh, how do you do? Where are we? Is this hell? Just my London headquarters. That's not your name, is it? George Spigot. Come on in. It's one of my many earthly pseudoplumes or nomdolems. I thought you were called Lucifer. I know, the bringer of the light it used to be. Sounds a bit puffy to me. God keeps changing his name too, you know. He used to be called the Word. Yeah, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. Was it just a word hanging about in space then? I suppose so. I wasn't there. What's it mean, the Word? What does Stanley Moon mean? Evening, Anger. 
quickly. Quickly run to your neighbors. Tell them the night is full of thieves. They have robbed us of our most precious treasures, of our pride, of our glory, of our wisdom, of our honor. They do not see. They do not hear. Only the jackals who are waiting in the darkness now. Only the vultures who are wheeling in the black skies now. Mourn. Mourn for the land that is no more. What we just heard was actress Sophia Loren running through the streets of ancient Rome in the closing chapter of the film, The Fall of Rome, as she was running through crowds of celebrating Roman citizens who have looted the state treasury. In the end, Rome succumbed to the popular will, to the will of the people, and fell because of its failure to adhere to the principles that gave rise to the Roman Empire in the first place. It was a relapse from civilization to tribalism, with each tribe of conflicting values and objectives constantly trying to destroy the other tribes and collectives. This is the nature of humanity in the absence of good governance. So, you know, what I'm talking about today is majority rule, you know. When I talk about people, everyone's talking today about we have to have, what do you call it, proportional representation, right? Um, Trudeau's talking about it. And of all people, um, people like Jim Chapman are talking about. You know who Jim Chapman is. He's a guy who we, we debated with on left, right, and center in the show that preceded this one. Yes, of course. And... He has recently written a very disappointing column, I think, um, in London Business Magazine just last month, which reads, Defining democracy, it's time for electoral reform, but it should be left to the voters. And I'm just going to read it quickly and then tell you how many things I think are wrong with this, because I think everything I'm going to read to you is wrong. And here it goes. Academics will tell us the modern Canadian democratic process is, is an effective way to determine the will of the people, supposedly the holy grail of representative democracy. But in this country, that's little more than a theory because we routinely elect governments that have the support of not much more than a third of the electorate. That has made us complacent about having a minority impose its will on the majority, normally a serious no-no for countries that value personal freedom. Those elected in such a fashion then pretend they have a mandate to govern however they see fit. Canada needs a better way to better represent the preferences of a majority of voters, the true will of the people. Justin Trudeau won the recent election with a 39.5% of the vote, so in spite of his claims to the contrary on election night, he can hardly claim to represent all Canadians. For that matter, Stephen Harper held sway in Ottawa for almost a decade without even coming close to winning a majority of the popular vote. We badly need election reform in this country. I believe we should have a panel of Canadians from all walks of life review the options. This isn't rocket science, after all. Allowing majority governments elected by one-third of the electorate to exercise almost absolute control over Parliament is not only a bad idea, it's a dangerous one. In fact, it may be the greatest threat to true democracy we face. End quote. And here I thought it was global warming, wasn't that what Trudeau's been saying? (laughs) Yes. Oh, man. Well, I disagree with just about every assertion and statement that I just read there. So very quickly, here's my problems with it. (laughs) Number one, the democratic process. That's called voting. 
And voting is not about the will of the people. It is about obtaining the people's consent to govern as promised by the representative candidate of a voter's view. There is no such thing as the will of the people. Put any five people in a room and you're going to have five wills, all moving in different directions. It's really a want of the people that I would prefer. <laughs> we won't do this, or we won't gang up on some minority to get the minority's property, limit that minority's rights, or threaten that minority's life. I prefer the want of the people, Robert. Number two, representative democracy is little more than a theory, says, Ch says Chapman, because of the mechanism we use to vote. Well, representative government, not democracy, is a theory, but not one based on the principle of majority, but on rationality. Ayn Rand explains that representative government is a theory of government that rests on the principle that man is a rational being, that he's able to perceive the facts of reality, to evaluate them, to form rational judgments, to make his own choices, and to bear responsibility for the course of his life. Politically, this principle is implemented by a man's right to choose his own agents those whom he authorizes to represent him in the government of his country. To represent him in this context means to represent his views in terms of political principles. Thus, the government of a free country derives, quote, its just powers from the consent of the governed, end quote. Number three, Chapman's observations that allowing, for example, one-third of voters to elect the majority government has made us complacent about having a minority impose its will on the majority. That misses the point entirely. Since when, in a free society, is even the reverse acceptable? I.e., imposing, uh, imposing, mind you, the will of the majority on the minority or the minority on the majority. Does it matter? The smallest minority in any society, goes the old saying, is the individual. Democracy is not about majority groups imposing their wills on anybody. Ever. He's taking it's the only... word imposing as, as tacit, um, he's tacitly accepting it, as if, like, Oh, we have to be imposed upon. I'd rather exactly. be imposed upon by the majority rather than the minority. Well, what about yes. not impositioning me at all? Thank you. It's, it's a mindset, and it's very destructive. I, 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 can't, I cannot understate this. Um, you know, what, 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 oh yeah, the other thing is that it's only by thinking this way that one is led into the trap, that the lethal danger of majority rule is being, you know, the god of the machine. It's a prescription for tyranny, not for freedom. So number four, Chapman cites the preferences of a majority of voters as being the true will of the people. Uh, that's patently insane, Robert. I'm sorry. <laughs> preferences about what? The only thing being voted for is a candidate as a representative and not anything else. If there are only two candidates running, you got one of two choices, buddy. You haven't got a choice of preferences. No preferences in any broad sense of the term. If three candidates are running, you still have only one of three choices. And if a hundred candidates are running and none of them agrees with your preferences, you still got no choice. <laughs> you know? You know, again, from Ayn Rand, she speaks to voting. But she says voting is a consequence, not a primary cause of a free social system. And its value depends on the constitutional structure implementing and strictly delimiting the voter's power. Unlimited majority rule is an instance of tyranny, and that is what everyone is advocating. It frightens me. So, you know, she says, a majority vote is not an epistemological validation of an idea. Voting is merely a proper political device within a strictly constitutionally limited sphere of action for choosing the practical means of implementing a society's basic principles. But those principles are not determined by vote. 
Individual rights are not subject to a public vote. A majority has no right to vote away the rights of a minority. And so why are we even talking about it? That's what I want to know. Mm. And then number five. This suggestion freaks me out more than any of the other nonsensical majority rule notions. Quote, I believe we should have a panel of Canadians from all walks of life to review the option. This isn't rocket science after all, he says. Yes, Jim, it isn't rocket science. In fact, it's a lot more complicated than rocket science. I agree. Because ro- I agree. Because ro- oh, you know why? Because rocket science follows determined and known and advanced sets of laws. Exactly. It's simple. Descriptive laws of nature that behave the same way every time. Rocket science is easy. Good governance is extraordinarily difficult and is, above all, not defined by majority rule, which has always been the principle by which mankind has enslaved itself. By the way, that's not to suggest that um, a model for good governance is not achievable. It's just simply a a very complex and difficult idea. But achievable. Right. Right. And so... You know, it, it is a difficult task, and government does not deal with descriptive laws, though it's unavoidably subject to them, you know, nature, gravity, causality, but deals in prescriptive laws, the laws that must be obeyed by choice, unlike the descriptive laws of nature. Politics is about abstractions, concepts of the mind. Now, the concept of majority rule is mere arithmetic. It doesn't even come close to anything resembling mathematics, Robert, let alone rocket science which mathematics deals with complex formulas and variables. If you were going to solve a mathematical formula by gathering a group of people from all walks of life to vote on the correct answer to a given problem, how do you suppose that's going to work out? (laughs) You know, politics is more like brain surgery. (laughs) It is. But, you know, how would that work out? Here's how. There'd be no such discipline as mathematics anymore. And be done. Hmm. It would no longer be subject to mathematical principles, but to the will of a majority. And that will just never add up in any way, shape, or form. So I just want to say, you know, forgive Jim and Justin Lord for, you know, they know not what they say, is what I'm tempted to say. And, you know, Jim asserts that unless we return to some sort of rule by a true majority, this will be the greatest threat to democracy we face. Well, Nothing could be further from the truth. Regrettably, it's that kind of thinking reflected in the commentary and in the implementation of such ideas you know, by po- political leaders like Justin Trudeau. That's the real threat to, to democracy and to the sovereign individual's ability to live in a free society. So if I want to be sarcastic, here's the most obvious solution to the majority rule dilemma for Jim on his own terms, okay? Because the problem relates to the Canadian circumstance, one where we have more than two parties with large numbers of supporters, not an American one where they only effectively have two parties to choose from. So here's what you do, Robert. Just deregister the NDP or force it to amalgamate with either the Liberals or Conservatives, and you've solved it. You've got a two-party system. <laughs> You're done. Hmm. Majority vote problem solved, right? Well, at least in terms of the two options. But I don't think you solved the problem because you'd still require a majority of voters to show up, and guess where that ends up? you got to start forcing forcing them to go and vote until you get that standard of everybody's got to vote. And, you know, suppose there's only one party. Under a forced vote attendance, 98% of voters vote for the one party. According to Chapman, you know, the rocket fuel formula of rocket science democracy, that would be okay so long as a majority voted for it. (laughs) And, you know, the more I think about it, the more bizarre it is. I just can't believe it. You know, won't get fooled again. I keep hearing the who refrain. 
meet the new boss, same as the old boss, or worse than the old boss. So here's my advice to our listeners today. Don't be a majority fool. Like fool's gold, which is not gold, <laughs> so too fool's democracy is not a democracy. It's a foolish standard of good governance based solely on absolute majorities and majority rule. Even on its face, it sounds foolish. A giant step backward. Rule is rule. Whether by kings, individuals, minorities, or majorities, governance is governance. Only by the conversion of a kingdom, a dominion of kings, to a freedom, a dominion of free individuals, meaning free from each other, not constantly in fear of some voter attack that diminishes your life, liberty, and property. You know, I posted a great quote from Ayn Rand in a framed picture format on Facebook a couple weeks ago, and I got a lot of likes. And the quote reads, Civilization is the progress toward a society of privacy. The savage's whole existence is public, ruled by the laws of his tribe. Civilization is the process of setting man free from men. And that's from the Fountainhead. And, uh, you know, that's just in stark and glaring contrast. How ironic that it should be the leader of a party named Liberal, which once represented individualism, who should be the one to, to talk like this. Quote, Trudeau talks the power of we, reads the November 11th London Free Press headline. We Day is not about you becoming leaders of tomorrow. This is about you being leaders today, he is quoted as saying. Robert, that was yesterday, or at least 23 or 4 yesterdays ago, and I'm still not feeling very much like a leader when it comes to enduring what I see the liberals doing. Being leaders of today, which sounds so inspiring and uplifting until you stop to think about it, what is he saying? The power of we in politics, which is about physical force in the service of governance? Just who's supposed to be leading if everyone's a leader? You know, <laughs> yes. what can possibly be other than mob rule? This is mob rule packaged as, as leadership, just like Rome. And, of course, it's perfectly consistent with Trudeau's support of proportional representation. And, uh, you know, if implemented, he would never have got his majority government as it is. So... That's where I stand on that. It, uh, any other thoughts that you might want to add, Robert, before we wrap up? No, again, it's, it's almost the harkens back to what I was talking about earlier, about egalitarianism. Trying to make everybody a leader, you know, everybody the same. We are all individuals. <laughs> <laughs> right out of Monty Python. Yes, it is. And yeah, the, this yeah. is quite a farce. Um, we Day and all that, and Giving Day. It's... Um, it's, it's quite a tragic road we're going down, and unfortunately Jim, and I really like Jim as a person, but uh, he's, he's drunk the Kool-Aid on, on this egalitarian stuff, and, and not properly identifying government as an instrument of force which has to be constrained, you know? That's right, absolutely. And, uh, you know, so Robert, I vote that everyone should be forced to listen to our show. But wait. <laughs> Second. That just wouldn't be right. And, you know, and our show's called Just Right. So instead, I recommend that everyone force themselves to join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Excuse me, miss? Yes. If I were to give you this gift basket, based on that action alone and no other data, infer and describe the hypothetical relationship that exists between us. <laughs> Excuse me? Yeah. Here. Now, are we friends? Colleagues? Lovers? 
You my grandmother? I don't understand what you're talking about and you're making me a little uncomfortable. See, sounds just like you and Penny. We'll take it. Robert and I hope you weren't too uncomfortable listening to our show today. Visit www.justrightmedia.org for more, where you can check out show 415, where you'll learn all about how to get rid of nuclear waste by shooting it into the sun. And believe it or not, about space elevators as one way of doing this. Seriously, here's what entrepreneur, inventor, science and technology futurist Andy Jansen shared with me. We don't have the material for it yet, but... Hopefully, within a generation, certainly two generations, we will have it. And it's literally the material that will be used on the space elevator. Now, I, we talked about that earlier, and I have always seen that space elevator as true science fiction stuff. I remember seeing a space elevator on an episode of Voyager called Rise. And uh, they literally, it was, it was almost like an elevator on a string going up in the space. <laughs> what holds that darn thing up? Well, you think of it as a wire. Um, you're on the space shuttle and you have a coil of wire and you put a weight on one end and throw it down towards hopefully near the equator and on the other end you have a weight and you throw it up and it pulls itself taunt gravity pulls it down but centrifugal force of rotation of the planet the centrifugal force pulls it taunt is that what holds it up? that's what holds I it ha- up So they're li- well, we just don't have a material we can stretch that far yet what, what uh wouldn't weather and all sorts of other problems between the surface of the Earth and, and out in space be an issue, or is that not well, an issue? Well, you think about it, there would be no lightning strikes in the area. Mm-hmm. You'd have all the current would want to go down this, this wire. Uh, it produces electricity, so you'd uh, uh, put a clamp on near the end, and you'd step it down through a series of transformers and feed it into the grid. You know, I, I've seen this idea promoted in so many magazines and, yes. and illustrated in weird ways. And I'm going, wow, that just looks beyond the pale. I just got and you have a magnetic field around the wire, so you can put a platform around it and uh, go up and down. And about two-thirds of the way up, you'll have to reverse your polarity to start breaking. Because as the air is thin, uh, you're moving very quickly, and you have to, about two-thirds of the way up, you have to start reversing. So you can actually break before you <laughs> run out of uh, wire at the top. When you say polarity, it, polarity it, between what two points? Well, the whole thing, the, um, uh, basically it's a generator. A generator is a wire moving in a magnetic field. And as you rotate this wire, which I suspect will be made of graphene, um, that um, as this wire rotates around this planet and passes through all the magnetic fields, it discharges and attempts to go down the wire to ground itself where you take out, uh, through a clamp or a connection point, step it down through a series of transformers and feed the local grid. 